so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. <laughs> oh my gosh, Lindsay. My mom is using the loudest vacuum possible downstairs. <laughs> At least you have someone vacuuming in your home. That's I'm jealous of that. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC on behalf of Southern Baptists. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and this week I am so excited. I think joining me for the first time, although it may not be, is my friend and colleague, Palmer Williams. How are you doing, Palmer? Great. I'm excited to be here with you. I'm so glad that you're here. I cannot wait to just glean wisdom from you. Have you been on the podcast before? I cannot remember. I think I've been on, um, not for a full episode, but just to, to give some legal opinions several times, but it's been a while. Okay. It's been a hot minute. And who knows if it was pre-COVID, post-COVID, because that just feels like Twilight Zone. Right. Yes. Uh, so a year is as if it's a thousand years in yes. the COVID world. Yeah. What is time anymore? What is time? Well, I'm glad that we have you for a whole episode and I get to ask you questions and learn from you. I'm really excited for listeners to get to know you because if you know Palmer, then you love Palmer. Also a funny fact, when I first was getting to know you and your family, because we were at church together, I would always call y'all the Palmers because <laughs> I would just mix it up. And I did it to somebody else at church the other day and I told Justin... He was like, you mean the so-and-sos? I was like, yeah. Well, when I was first getting to know Palmer, I would always call them the Palmers. And I have no idea why. I know. It's the problem of having a last name as a first name. As a first name. You have two last names. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's get started. And I want to start out by you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do at the ERLC. Sure. So um, I think my official title is General Counsel and Senior Policy Advisor. Um, so my background is in international law. I live in Nashville with my husband, Joseph, and we have three little wild boys who are eight, five, and three. So our house is crazy, as you know, Lindsay. So I'm a mom full-time and then am at the ERLC um, as much as I can. And I do any of our legal analysis, help with amica briefs that we might submit, help with any legal needs that come up, but then also deal a lot with our team in DC, um, speaking into policy, helping us write comments right now to the Biden administration anytime they're releasing new regulations that affect one of the areas that the ERLC speaks into. So a little bit of everything. Um, my days look different every day and I love that. I love getting to research and write on new topics, all kind of rooted in my background which comes from constitutional law and international human rights law. And what people don't know about you is that in addition to those things, you're doing 
5,000 other unofficial things <laughs> with titles. I do have a lot. <laughs> You've founded to help found a school. Yes. You are probably solving the problem of world hunger. No, <laughs> no. In addition to amazing other things out there. So we like to spin, spin lots of plates in our house for sure. But yeah, you do. And you guys spin them well, but I'm glad that we get just a little bit of your time. Well, a lot of your time actually at the ERLC. Absolutely. So Southern Baptists uh, have tasked us at the ERLC with focusing on four areas in our work, human dignity, pro-life issues, marriage and family, and religious liberty. With your just your life story and your background and your training and all of that, which are particularly close to your heart and why? Yeah, I mean, that's such a hard question because I get excited by each of the areas that we speak into. But, you know, I think a lot of my previous work comes in the field of religious liberty. My husband is a religious liberty constitutional expert. And so getting to walk alongside him as he's helped in that arena for years and and doing some work myself internationally, I have done a lot of work for persecuted religious minorities abroad. And so have spent a lot of time thinking about religious liberty when it not only within our own constitutional framework in the United States, but also within the broad international legal treaty system. And so anytime we get to to talk about those issues and those issues come before the Supreme Court all the time, we're starting to see them a little bit more at the state level as well. It is exciting to me and I love getting to hear about that. Um, But I think that the human dignity lane is one that most resonates with me and my training and background. I have spent a lot of my personal time advocating for the rights of children and child welfare laws abroad, adoption, foster care. And so I love talking about the dignity of every image bearer. And specifically, you know, part of my story, I am a paraplegic. I was in a car accident when I was eight years old. And so I use a wheelchair and I love getting to see how the ERLC and the Southern Baptist Convention can elevate the dignity of the disabled community as well and can speak into the value of every life, no matter their abilities. We do not have a utilitarian view of each, the worth of each human, but instead have this biblically rooted vision of what is the worth of every person. And I personally walk out that story every day. And so I just am so grateful that our organization does as well not only for the disabled community, but for the immigrant and refugee community and for the life of the preborn and those that are often marginalized in our community. That is the heart of Jesus. And it is an honor to get to do work that kind of illuminates his heart for everyone. Well, and you do that work so well and you live that truth out so well. And again, another reason why we are grateful to have you on the team And I'm learning things about you and your family because I had no idea your husband was a religious liberty constitutional expert. How did I not know this? Yeah, yeah, that's what Joseph has done since he was in law school. And that was his very first job. He worked for the Alliance Defending Freedom. I think at the time they were called the, they were still ADF, but I think they were the Alliance Defense Fund. They rebranded. And he was a, a Blackstone scholar with them and got to work on those issues, you know, from the time he was in law school on, I was working kind of on the international side, 
but with very similar overlaps in the types of issues we were advocating for and briefing, which was really fun. I mean, I love being married to another attorney. I'm glad that we have different areas of expertise. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think it's great. We can help each other and, you know, give each other advice while also kind of having our own lanes, which I think is, is really healthy and good. But yeah, Joseph has done that for most of his career. And even for a time, he was at the ERLC helping with some of that. Well, y'all are a power couple in so many ways. And speaking of Joseph, so he works in politics. He ran for office. And by virtue of you being his wife, you have seen the world of politics up close and personal. Mm -hmm. And we're about to enter an election season and it's probably going to be a contentious election season. And it's just been contentious in the world of politics in general for the last several years in our country. So it's always good to be reminded of what is good and true in the midst of that. So tell us a little bit about family life and politics and tell us what we should remember during a chaotic season like we're about to probably enter? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I want to touch on two things. One would be what it's like to run for office and then one, what it's like to be in that world in the day-to-day in Joseph's work life. You know, I think it is very easy to look at Twitter and look at cable news and vilify politicians and the political life. And there's reason for that, right? We have not always good faith actors, but it is such a critical area, um, especially in these areas that we talk about at the ERLC. There is so much good work to be done. And I think as believers, one thing I would just challenge is to pray about it. Could God ever be leading you to run for your school board or your metro council or your state house? Is there a place for you to step into that in a very faithful way in which you can be distinctively Christian? Joseph ran in a purple district in here in Nashville, which was such a blessing because it allowed him to be himself and to just put aside party. He ran in a certain party, but got to put aside some of those labels and really just say, here's who I am and who my family serves, meaning Jesus. And here's how I think here's the lens through which I think about all of these issues. And it was such a sweet, it was a hard thing to do. It takes a lot of time. He ran for the state house. So a relatively small campaign, but he was able to go, I think he knocked like 6,000 doors himself one summer, which actually ended up being the perfect thing for me. Our boys were really young at the time. Actually, our third son wasn't even born. And Joseph would take the boys with him in a stroller. And I got time to work. (laughs) or do whatever I needed to do around the house. And he would just go and meet constituents. I mean, he came home every day and was like, I think this is a ministry. I get to meet these people at the door and ask them what's important to them and what they care about. And he, one of the big takeaways he would always say is we are so much more alike in our views than we think we are. And we're in an urban metro area, you know, which can feel very divisive. But he said, you know, when you actually talk to people, they care about the safety of their family. They care about their neighbor. They care about infrastructure and good roads and that sort of thing. And so he came away really encouraged. So I say all that to say, I know politics gets a really bad rap and for good reason, but it can also be a ministry field and it can also be something you do as a family. We spent when 
he was running for office, we had more good family time than we ever had before because we got to do and we just made our boys a part of our journey and they got to see and experience that as well, which was really fun. So I just encourage be involved and don't be scared away. We need faithful, level-headed, kind people to lean in. And I think constituents respond to that. But then on the other side, my husband now works in the political arena. And I think what I would remind people is there are human beings on the other side of all of these issues. And so, you know, if we really do believe in the Imago Dei and the human dignity of each person, we have to treat each other with respect, especially those we disagree with. I think that's when it is really easy to vilify the other side rather than attack the issue. And especially if the other side is doing it to us, right? We feel this need to retaliate to kind of one up. But I think especially when the other side maybe is personally attacking us, bringing the conversation back to the issues at hand is such a God-honoring thing to do. I think we also, we do a disservice to ourselves and to our neighbor who we might be arguing with if we argue against straw men. And I think one thing that I always try to do and encourage others to do is if you are arguing with someone, don't argue against a trope of their position. Take them at their word that they are, and maybe they aren't well-meaning, but pretend they are well-meaning. What is the best version of their argument and argue there? It's just honoring to them that you're not always assuming the worst. And also it's going to strengthen your position, right? If you're actually arguing against the best version of their argument, then you're actually getting to the heart of maybe moving the needle on the issue. So those are some things we've learned, but I would just say be kind and recognize that there are people (laughs) on the other side of these issues. Palmer, those are such good reminders and encouragements. And you, the very last part reminded me of 1 Corinthians 13 and being called to believe the best about people and believes all things, bears all things, endures all things. And that's what we're called to do to demonstrate the love of Christ. And it doesn't mean that we ignore the truth, but it means that we speak the truth in love and with grace. And so that is such a good point. And I'm glad that you talked about human dignity. I mean, it ties back to our issues that we're involved in, but every single person is made in God's image. And when you're assaulting them, you're assaulting the God in whose image they are made, the creator who has crafted them. And it's easy to do that when you're just fighting with an avatar on a screen in our social media age, or when you're following a tribe, because it is, uh, it's the cool thing to do now. Humility isn't prized. It's the person who has the perfect punch or can jab someone in 140 characters or less, although it's more than 140 characters now. But you look at Jesus and he went to his death on the cross, having never sinned for his enemies. Who of us would do that? We can't even speak in love toward our enemies these days. And again, Jesus, he spoke the truth. He didn't shy away from it. And yes, he overturned the tables in the temple. But I think so many of us think that our anger all the time is perfectly righteous. (laughs) And we forget that, no, it's probably not. It's tainted with sin. Jesus's was 
His was not. But we should take a step back and explore our own hearts. Is this righteous anger or is this sinful anger? And the way that I'm expressing this anger, is it righteous or is it sinful? And I think more often than not, we will find sin underneath all that anger. Right. And if we think about where his righteous anger was directed, it wasn't at those outside of God's family, right? That's who he met with love and compassion, with truth, the women at the well, with absolute truth, but with gentleness. But he overturned the tables in the temple, right? Like that's where he, what really stirred him up was when there was people bearing false witness within his own tribe. And so I I often think of how would Jesus approach those who don't know him? Yes, with truth, but absolutely with gentleness. And gentleness is such a, I think it's kind of the most underrated fruit of the spirit. We don't talk about it much. People don't seem to understand it. I was at a 40th birthday party for a mutual friend of ours, Lindsay, a couple of weeks ago. And she's one of the most gentle and kind women I know. Brilliant, beyond brilliant. But every person as they were going around the table were talking about her and her gentleness. And it just reminded all of us what our Savior looks like, right? He was just this gentle person who was able to enter into hard conversations and not shy away from them, but to do so in a (laughs) level-headed kind way. And so I don't think that's a position of weakness. He wasn't weak. No. It's just emulating him. Well, and it's the meekness without which no one will see the kingdom of God. And that's a good point that you made as well about being in the temple. He was concerned first and foremost about God's glory and about people's perception of who God is and about people's access to God. And so in the way that we're interacting with people, whether it's within the church or not within the church, what are we portraying to them about who our God is? And are we laying stumbling blocks before them that would keep them from coming to Christ or coming to our God? And so those are all just important things to consider. Are we, do we love the glory that comes from man or do we love the glory that comes from God? And our hearts would condemn all of us in that we need the meekness of our Savior. So those are all such good reminders. Mm. I want to ask you about the SBC and your work there and your experience there. So in your role and with your training, you've worked across various SBC entities and committees. And I'm interested to know, what have you learned through your work so far? How have you been encouraged? And what reminders would you offer those of us within the SBC? That's a great question. You know, yeah, I've spent a lot of time on several different committees and helping with different initiatives. I think it's best articulated with thinking about this time last year, going into Anaheim, there was just seemed to be a lot of tension, a lot of, of heated rhetoric on Twitter. And I was really dreading, I told my husband, I'm really dreading going to Anaheim. I just feel like it's going to be so divisive. We're not going to be putting our, our best foot forward. And so I went with a really heavy heart and feeling with a little bit of bitterness of, Lord, is this worth it? And went to Anaheim and met so many incredible pastors and families who have devoted their life to missions or church planning or have been at the same church for 30 years and are serving faithfully. And I realized that the heat that we hear about in the media and on Twitter is not fully representative of the denomination as a whole. And yes, some of those issues are important, but when we're face-to-face and can talk about the things 
that really matter to our churches and that really the work that they're doing, it is incredibly encouraging. And I left what I thought was going to be a really hard meeting, deeply encouraged about what God is doing within our convention and, and within his people around the world. And so I think, you know, it can feel really daunting to get involved at the denominational level, but I think it's a great place to serve. And I have actually seen it be encouraging. One of the things that I get to do at the ERLC, I help a lot with our Caring Well project. I'm helping to prevent abuse and helping churches to respond well when abuse is disclosed. And so I get to talk to a lot of pastors who are asking good, hard questions of how do we better equip our churches? How do we proactively make sure that abuse is not welcome in our churches? So I talk to them on a weekly basis. And it is so encouraging to hear the heart of our pastors, a lot of whom are bivocational and who are shepherding um, very small congregations, but who, even with their limited resources, recognize the importance of that issue and the need for our houses of worship to be the safest place for survivors and for children. And so I think in that role, I've been encouraged that we have a lot of pastors who care about these issues, even the hard, they're willing to walk into the hard and say, I'm not going to run away from this. I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't happen because I know it does. And I want to make sure it doesn't in my church. So that work in particular has led me to be very optimistic about where our churches are headed. Again, on the topic of social media or living in a social media age, that is a great reminder that Twitter, the Twitter world or whatever world it might be is not indicative of the entire SBC. It's just some of the loudest voices who use technology. But there are so many faithful pastors and churches that we don't hear from on a daily basis on social media who are sowing good seeds and doing good gospel work and proclaiming the name of Jesus and just being faithful, whose names we won't know mm. until we get to heaven, who are maybe the last in line in this life, but as as Jesus says, will be the first and some of the greatest among us. So I'm thankful you got that experience and that your spirit was refreshed through meeting some of these faithful men and women who love the Lord and love His church and are just being faithful to it. Yeah, absolutely. I had never been to a SBC annual meeting before. And just because of raising babies and, you know, time and all the things. So this was my first experience last year. And it really was so encouraging to see and to see the beautiful kingdom diversity that was represented in Anaheim. That was so encouraging to me to see all of the translation that was happening and all the different languages that were spoken. It was just a really beautiful picture of similar to what we see in Revelation. Well, and hopefully this year we'll get some beignets being in New Orleans. Yes. That would be amazing. Yes, yes. We definitely have a beignet date on the calendar, Lindsay. <laughs> yes, please, please. So we talked about the future of the SBC. Now I want to shift and talk about the future of the courts. So with your training and legal understanding, I'm interested to know how you feel about the future of the courts as it relates to the issues that we advocate for in the public square. So we've been watching some cases at the Supreme Court. We're interested to see how they will be ruled upon this summer. Of course, we know we had the big Dobbs decision 
mm-hmm. last year. And the Supreme Court has become really significant in our culture. And our advocacy before the courts is a large part of what many on our team do, including yourself. So how do you feel about it? Are you wringing your hands? Are you fearing? Are you encouraged? Are you emboldened? Help give us some perspective. Yeah, you know, I think I'm encouraged. I think we have a lot of cases that we're watching right now that we anticipate rulings coming down this summer. There's a lot of activity happening right now, both on the religious liberty front, also on the human dignity front coming down from the Dobbs decision. I think I am encouraged by the way the justices are thinking about specifically religious freedom. I think they've continually ruled in favor of religious liberty more and more over the last few years. And so I think that's encouraging. And of course, you know, I would have lost all the bets that we would have already overturned Roe v. Wade in my lifetime. And the fact that it happened last year is stunning to me, but deeply encouraging to me. And I think the makeup of our court, the thoughtfulness of our current justices. And I think what's really fascinating to me, I love, I'm a legal nerd. So forgive the uh, legal nerd indulgence here, but I love seeing how justices come down on opinions because it's not just all the conservative justices are on this side and all the progressive justices are on this side on every issue. They often switch sides. And there's lots of other cases that you see this split decision and you can tell they're being thoughtful about each of the issues. They're not just along partisan lines. And so I think that's one really unique feature of our court. I think people often talk about the relationship between Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg, where you have what was one of the most conservative justices and one of the most progressive justices, and they were best friends. And I love that that can happen on the Supreme Court specifically. I think the other thing I would say is, and I'm sure it's been said on this podcast before, but I am really turning my eyes. I mean, yes, what's happening in Washington is important, but really a lot of my focus is becoming regional and at the state level, because I think post-Dobbs, a lot of the policy and the laws passed and even the court cases that are happening are happening at the state level. And so I think, and that's not just on the issue of religious freedom. It's also on the issue of marriage and family. It's, you know, also on human dignity. I think that we are seeing more things happening, big things happening on the state level, which is how our constitution was drawn up, right? We have these laboratories of democracy and each, not only do we have our federal system, but each state gets to decide within that structure what works best for their citizens. And so I would really encourage our listeners to know what's happening at the state level, especially around these issues that are so important to Christians, human dignity, marriage and family specifically, because there is a lot happening on the state level right now. I think we need to have a Constitution 101 episode with you where you can help us understand some of these things. Well, those of us who are not legal nerds and who don't understand these things and sometimes feel overwhelmed by the process to affect change at the local and state level, because we have talked about it on this podcast that 
it is important for us to be involved at the local and the state level. All the attention goes to the national level. But like you said, especially in the area of life with the Dobbs decision, there are things that are important things, essential things that need to happen at the state and local level in order to make abortion illegal and unthinkable across our nation. I also love what you said about Scalia and Ginsburg and how they are just an example of civil discourse in our society, which we've lost the art of, that you don't have to hate people that you disagree with. You don't have to vilify them or demonize them, but you can have good relationships with them. You can love them even as you disagree and have important essential conversations with them uh, while still being friends. And that's something that we have just lost the art of in our society. It's so true. And I think my husband and I, we both went to secular university, secular law school. He grew up in an environment where he was, you know, the political minority his whole life. And I think, I mean, you knowing Joseph Lindsay, you know, he's one of the most joyful and kind people, even when he's vehemently disagreeing with you. And I think a lot of that is owed to the fact that he grew up with people who thought very differently than him. And so because they were his best friends, he couldn't vilify them, right? He knew that they were well-meaning, well-intentioned, though had different and maybe wrong beliefs. So he had to develop a humility. Similarly, I think going to a secular school, it was, I had to learn the art of what does it look like to maintain friendships while also disagreeing? Otherwise, it would have been friendless. <laughs> and, right. and so I think we've so easily, I think through social media and just fear, have siloed ourselves to the point where we don't know anyone who doesn't agree with us. We don't have deep friendships and relationships. It's not the same to know, okay, I think that friend of mine who I knew 10 years ago disagrees with me now. I'm talking about like real, honest relationships that we're doing life together with people who think differently. It's difficult. It's so hard. Um, but I think it's so important. One of the most kind of influential books that I've ever read was Rosaria Butterfield's The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Have mm -hmm. you read that, Lindsay? Yeah, I've read parts of it, but I read her other book and love Rosaria. Yeah, she's so great. And I think she demonstrates what this can look like. And I actually think that a huge part of getting away from the villainization and divisiveness of our culture, the key actually is this radical hospitality that her premise is that all Christians are called to have. And she just details in that book how she invites her neighbors and and even how she herself was led to Christ, wasn't a believer and was shown radical hospitality by a pastor and his wife. And that's what led her, her to Jesus. And so if you haven't read it, I know it sounds weird to recommend a book on hospitality when it comes to politics, but I actually think they're very closely related and is a very helpful way to think about political engagement. Yes, love her writing and her thinking and her testimony. And, you know, you mentioned fear. And that was one thing that I wanted to say is that I think a lot of times the reason that we don't build those friendships or we vilify people is because we are afraid. We're afraid that it's going to, that 
way of thinking or even wrong thinking is going to rub off on us. Or it's because of insecurity, because we want people to like us or accept us. And I say that from personal experience and my own fears and hangups and insecurities. But we've got to remember in the midst of talking about politics or SBC or whatever it is that we're talking about, that ultimately what matters is whose we are and we are Christ's and that he holds us in the palm of his hand and that he holds the whole universe in the palm of his hand and he is ultimate, not these other things. And that if everyone else rejects us, he will not and he never will and he never has. And he went all the way to the cross so that we would be made in right relationship with the Father. So we have to remember who is ultimate and whose we are ultimately if we are going to be able to rightly relate to people and to these various institutions that the Lord has set up in our world the way that it is currently. Mm, That's so true. So as we wrap up, Palmer, it's been such a rich discussion. I knew that it would be, but I want you, so you mentioned Rosaria Butterfield's book. Are there any other book recommendations that you have, just fun books or they could be serious books, but I really like fun ones too. Yeah, so I'm looking at my Goodreads list right now. Um, Because I love love Goodreads list. Love it. I love to read and but I'm a mom of three boys. And so I do a lot of audiobooks. um, Oh, yes. While I'm doing laundry or while I'm in the car, shuttling carpool. So my favorite book over the last couple of years, and I feel like it's one amongst a lot of ERLC staffers is Jaber Crow um, by Wendell Berry. I love Wendell Berry. I feel like it feels like you're reading John Steinbeck, but it's kind of like an updated version. It's so beautiful. I cried at the end of it, not because, well, I do think then maybe it was sad. I don't remember, but because it was over and I was going to miss Jaber so much. So Uh (laughs) also I just read a book called, I'm looking it up now. I think it was called The Yellow Wife. And it was a, I really like historical fiction. And it was about a slave in the 1850s. And it was Mm -hmm. a really interesting perspective. It's a very intense book. So I give that warning because it's, you know, depicting the awful realities of slavery, especially for women. But it gave me a perspective on that time period that I had not read before. And it's Sitaqui Johnson is the author of that book. So what about you, Lindsay? What's your favorite read right now? Well, I haven't been on a reading kick as much lately, but I, like you, I do a lot of audiobooks because I just cannot seem to find or make the time to sit down and read. And if I do, then I get sleepy. I've currently been listening to Beneath a Scarlet Sky. I've been wanting to listen to that for the longest time. And So I think, I don't know if I'm halfway through, it might be less than that. But so far, it is a good read. I listened to Viola Davis's memoir. So she was in The Help and other movies. It's called Finding Me. And it is really moving. I have to warn you, it's got a lot of language in it. And of course, I don't agree with everything she says. But just to hear what her life was like. Again, it's one of those things where you have to step in people's shoes Mm. to realize why they are the way they are, why they think the way they think. Like, I feel like we wouldn't be as mean to people or think the worst of them if we knew what it is that they are walking through and what they have walked through. And that is an example of that. Just her story is 
incredible. She grew up in the midst of really, really hard things. And then I listened to, this was a while ago, but I listened to The Alice Network. And that is by Kate Quinn, I believe. And it was so good. There are probably some parts to skip through, but it's about World War II. And I really loved it. It grabbed my attention. And I found myself just flying through it and making excuses to be able to listen to it. So (laughs) finding house chores to do. I love anything by Kate Quinn. There's actually a book that I just read called The Diamond Eye that's also by her. And it's about a Ukrainian female sharpshooter in World War II. And it gives you this history of, you know, I feel like I've read so many World War II books, but not really on that Eastern front. And so it Mm -hmm. gave you this perspective of what Ukraine was like in the middle of World War II. My last recommendation, I followed it up with a book called I Will Die in a Foreign Land by Kalani Pickhart. And Mm -hmm. it is a book about Ukraine, set in Ukraine, but I think in 2014, when Crimea was annexed. And it's kind of a modern historic telling of what has been happening over there. And both of those books combined, one, they were just great reads, but also I think gave me a little more perspective and understanding on some of the current dynamics happening that I thought was really helpful. And I just love, I love learning about history and getting context through story. So yeah, both of those were kind of in that same vein of the Alice Network. Well, good. Then we've got some stuff to add to our Goodreads list or our Libby or Scribd or whatever it is that we use. Yes. Palmer, thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us and to let us get to know you a little bit more and encourage us as far as the work at the ERLC that Southern Baptists have tasked us to do and the goings-on within the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'm going to hold you to a beignet date at (laughs) the annual meeting in New Orleans. Whether we have to have those brought into the convention center because it's going to be so busy or not, we are getting some beignets. We are getting them. Well, secret, the last time I landed in New Orleans, they actually had a Café du Monde in the airport. Mm -hmm. No, I cannot confirm or deny if they're as good as the original shop. But for those that might be flying into New Orleans, you can actually get them in the airport themselves. So, okay, there you go. That's a great tip for flying in because it is going to be busy. That's for sure. Yes. Okay, friend. Well, I hope that you have a great day. And again, thank you for joining us. And thank you for all of your work on behalf of Southern Baptists. Thanks for having me, Lindsay.